So somehow summer's over already. Labor Day's passed. Not technically allowed to wear white anymore. School has started. And we've come to the end of Colossians. We've spent our summer... Uh, I might just do that. We'll see. We've spent our summer journeying through this whole book. A letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Colossae. To a small church... And do you want me to just turn this off and talk loud? I'll go up there. Sometimes we get radio interference. So this church in Colossae was a church Paul had never visited, but Paul had heard about them. So Paul sends this letter to encourage them along in their faith and to deepen them down into Jesus Christ. This letter has been an opportunity for us to explore again who we believe Jesus to be and what that matters for the world and every corner of our lives. If you've been away over the course of the summer or missed some chunks of this series, I'd encourage you to go and find our podcast or the sermon page on our website and listen back through this series It's been a good one. It's been kicking my butt having to preach it to you, and it's changed and challenged the way in which I'm a husband and a parent and a pastor. This week, as we come to the exciting conclusion, I want you to take a moment to do whatever you need to, to listen well to these words from the book that we love. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother who's one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, also greets you, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Eustace, greets you. These are the only ones of the circumcision among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, A servant of Christ Jesus greets you. He's always wrestling in his prayers on your behalf so that you may stand mature and fully assured in everything that God wills. For I testify for him that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that's in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you complete the task that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, Write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you.
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's Colossians 4, 7 through 18. If you want to keep your Bible open or your app up, because we'll look back at it a couple times. It can be really tempting when we come to the ending of these letters to just sort of skip over them. That the important stuff is now done, and these are just greetings that Paul ends with, so we might as well just keep moving. But there's a few really important details I want you to notice this morning before we make our way to the table of God's radical grace. The first one is this. This is a real letter written from real people to real people. Now, when we get to big, long lists of names like this, we tend to just kind of glaze over. But one of the things that becomes really obvious when you read a section like this is that this was a real letter from real people to real people. For us, too often, it becomes just another book in the Bible, which makes it either revered or maybe a little suspect. But it can be easy to forget that it's a real letter That there was a person named Paul who had a whole life, hopes and dreams and disappointments and failures and shortcomings, who was with a group of Christians who were seeking to share the news that had changed their lives, that Jesus of Nazareth had been raised from the dead, that one of those other Christians was Tychicus, a fellow servant in the Lord, who was the one who carried this letter that had been written down on parchment, dictated by Paul, this last little bit written in his own hand, carried by Tychicus from prison to Colossae, hand-delivered to a small Christian church there, that Onesimus traveled with him as well, that Mark was there, and a man named Jesus who went by Eustace, because otherwise it'd be confusing, that Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner of Paul, was there too, helping to write this letter. That Epaphras, who'd started the Colossian church, also was behind this letter. So too were Luke and Demas. And that these letters, this letter, was written also to real people, to Christians who suffered and struggled, who loved Jesus in Colossae. That it was to be shared, too, with Christians in Laodicea afterwards, read to Nympha and the whole church that gathered in her home, to Archippus as well with this strange instruction to carry out and finish the task the Lord gave you. This is a real letter from real people to real people. Five years ago this month was when Sam and I walked the Camino de Santiago, and because Apple Photos and Facebook seem to want to take every moment possible to remind me and show me all those old photos. You may hear a couple stories over the next month as those memories come back for me. That whole journey for us was 500 miles walking to Santiago de Compostela, where there's a cathedral, and in that cathedral are supposedly the bones of St. James, James the brother of John, in that closest circle of Jesus' disciples. Traditionally, you make your way there to then be able to pray to St. James and ask for something or to fulfill a vow because you've already prayed to St. James for something. As a Protestant, that's not why I was there. And I was a little curious about what it would be like to make it finally to this cathedral. And what I found when I got there 
making our way down into the crypt underneath the altar of the cathedral, which held the ossuary, which is just a fancy name for a box, within which are supposedly the bones of St. James, I was overcome with gratitude and awe that this was a real person. Not just a character in a set of old stories we tell over and over again, but a real human being who, along with another a number of other human beings, walked with Jesus of Nazareth, watched him die, experienced him having been raised from the dead, and who then went out to the ends of the earth to proclaim this good news. Their lives were dramatically transformed because of this, and they believed this one to be all the fullness of God dwelling bodily by his life, death, and resurrection, making peace with God for us. One of the primary reasons I believe all this stuff to be true is because of their actual changed lives, because they were real people. And they gave everything, many of them dying, including St. James, an early martyr in the church, because they believed all of this to be true. This is a real letter written by real people to real people about the absolute supremacy of Jesus over everything else and about the joy of living and serving and suffering in his name. And knowing that it's a real letter means that I have to take it more seriously than if it was just a few pages in an old dusty book. This is a real letter from real people to real people. But now the second thing we need to notice is that it's so much more than that. This isn't just an ancient piece of correspondence. We have many of those, and we don't spend our Sunday mornings gathered together to read them and study them. Did you catch the small detail about what Paul wants to happen after this letter has been read in Colossae? He wants them to share it with the church in Laodicea. And he wants them to make sure that they get to read the letter that he wrote to Laodicea when they're finished with it too. Because though these letters were written by real people to real people about real circumstances in their lives together, about struggles and problems and misunderstandings that were going on, even still, Paul wanted them shared, read aloud in other churches. And what we now know happened is that those churches copied them and spread them around, that they kept these copies and began to gather them and preserve them for future generations. Because they saw these letters as a continuation of Paul's apostolic mission. That he had been sent out by Jesus to share the good news, to guide and build up the church. To lay a foundation for a worldwide people of God. And these letters were an extension of that work to continue to carry it on. And indeed until today to continue to carry on that work. The church began to hear in these letters, not just the voice of another preacher, if even a remarkable and important one. They realized that they were hearing the voice of God. 
Like the prophets long before him, God was using Paul and Paul's words to reveal God's self, to build up the body, to sanctify and to save us. Theologian Todd Billing has said, just as water is taken up in the divine work of baptism, just as bread and wine are taken up into the divine work of the Lord's Supper, so also these creaturely words of Scripture are taken up into the triune God's work of salvation. And as the church began to recognize this remarkable truth, they added these letters to the Hebrew scriptures and passed them down to us as the Bible. This is a real letter written by real people, to real people. But it's much more than just that. It's the very word of God spoken to us as well. It is, as 1 Timothy says, God breathed. And therefore useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, for training character so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. Which means we can't just pick and choose the parts of it we want to listen to. Because we believe it's more than just a contextualized old letter. So when it speaks to us in ways that run counter to our current assumptions or cultural moment, We can't just toss it out and say, well, that's because it's old and the world has changed. We must learn to struggle with it, to surrender to it, to do our best to understand what of Christ it is trying to show to us and what of our own lives and culture we need to lay aside in order to follow. This is a real letter, but it's so much more than that. The last thing that I want you to see before we get to come to Christ's table are Paul's final words. Do you still have your Bibles open, with the app up, or your finger in it at least? It was verse 18, the very last verse of Colossians. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. It's that last part. Grace be with you. Technically, this is called a benediction, which is a Latin term that means good words spoken over someone. It's a blessing. We hear a lot of blessings, and so it's tempting to begin to take them just as rote. Every Sunday, in fact, I speak a blessing over you at the end of this service, a benediction. The same words each week, words taken from the book of Numbers, words that God gave to Aaron, the high priest, to be the priestly blessing spoken over the entire people of God. But because you've heard them every week, the same words in almost the same way, for almost seven years, you may be tempted to just let them pass you by. Don't. Benedictions are important. Because we believe in a God of blessing. We believe in a God who hears our prayers and answers them. We believe in a God who is continuing to be at work. Paul's benediction here is likewise incredibly important. Grace be with you. These aren't just churchy words. They're not just pious, but empty sentiments meant to be shared among religious insiders. 
Paul deeply means this. Grace be with you. Grace, the free yet costly gift of all Jesus has done for you. May it be with you. May it be real to you. May it work itself out in your life. May you come to know that grace and trust that grace and live with that grace toward one another. Grace be with you. And this isn't just a nice sentiment. It is changing lives. Maybe you noticed Paul mentioned a man named Onesimus. If you read the book of Philemon a little while later in your Bible, you'll know that Onesimus was a slave who belonged to a man named Philemon, who was a part of the Colossian church. Onesimus had escaped, run away, somehow made it to Paul, somehow become a Christian, somehow become a minister in the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul was now sending him back with Tychicus, carrying the letter to Colossians and a letter to Philemon to his home. Imagine what that homecoming might be like. You can get some of the details if you go and read Philemon later, but we get the cliff notes here. Because Paul doesn't send him back and say, here's Onesimus, that runaway slave, you're welcome. But what does he say of Onesimus? The faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Through the grace of Jesus Christ, his status and identity has been forever changed from slave into brother. He's been set free by the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace be with you. Maybe you noticed Mark's name. Mark first showed up in Acts. He was a young member of the church related to some of the the bigger leaders in the church at the time. He joined Paul and Barnabas on one of their first missionary journeys, at least until he abandoned them deserted them entirely in Pamphylia. And that hurt went so deep in Paul that when Barnabas wanted to bring him along on their next journey, Paul refused, and the fight got so bad that they parted company. A split entered into this young body of Christ. From Paul's remarks here, it seems clear that what Mark had done and his failures was well known in the church, and that it seemed to follow him like a cloud And yet here is Paul, the one hurt by his failure, urging them to welcome Mark in, calling him a co-worker in the kingdom of God, because the grace of forgiveness and second chances is being lived out. Grace be with you. And there's Barnabas, a better known leader in that early church who had been Paul's closest companion. The two had parted ways And yet his mention here at least suggests that the deep rift between the two of them was at least in the process of being healed. Because in the body of Christ, reconciliation is always possible. Grace be with you. You're getting the point, right? Grace, this free gift of Jesus Christ who gave himself that we might be set free. The grace by which we've been washed clean and made whole, brought back to God. The grace through which our own human relationships are also healed and restored and put back to right. May this grace be with you. 
May you know this grace. May you experience that grace. May you live out of this grace. And may you, in fact, taste, smell, see, and touch this grace until it's been so worked into your bones that you become grace. Grace be with you. And so if you want to receive that grace this morning, come with me to the table. To the table of God's grace. Poured out in Jesus Christ. To this table who belongs, that belongs to the one through whom all things were made. For whom all things were made. The one who sits now on the throne in heaven because he was willing to pour out his life for us. The one in whom we've come to find our fullness. And the one upon whom we now fix our eyes. Come to the table. Come to be fed, to be nourished, to be filled up in body and spirit, even as we are filled up by the very body and blood of Jesus, by the grace of God given to us while we are still sinners. Come, that grace may be with you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray.